it's time for us to study God's Word together. We come to Isaiah 42 this morning. So if Isaiah is a mountain range, then chapter 42 is one of the tallest and most majestic uh, peaks in that range. The grandeur of chapter 42 has been recognized by many and captured by few. But one of the best expositions of Isaiah 42, just the first four verses, is the bruised reed written 390 years ago in 1630 by an English Puritan named Richard Sibbs. When I first read this book in 2008, I wrote in the front, very likely the most encouraging book I have ever read. Thank you, Mr. Sibbs. Now, I doubt very seriously that he will ever read the note that I wrote to him, but I can recommend this book to you very highly. If you'd like to borrow my copy, you're welcome to. There's also one in our library downstairs. Isaiah 42 comes as part of God's message of comfort to his people that began in chapter 40. In this message of comfort is the promise in which God promises to deliver his people and then guarantees his promise by his power. Chapter 42 comes after chapter 41 that we looked at last week where the Lord continues to reassure his people that he can and will keep his promise to deliver them. And he does this by inviting everyone to consider who can you trust to help you in times of trouble? And to do this, you'll remember that it was sort of like a courtroom scene where God called the the panoply of gods to make their case. God put them on trial. And that trial produced two facts that we looked at last week. Number one, in times of trouble, the gods can't help you because they are nothing. Fact number two, the Lord God of Israel can and will help those who trust him because he is sovereign over all the events of the world. And then chapter 41 ended with this resounding verdict by the Lord. Behold, the gods of the nations are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And now, we turn the page to chapter 42. And it opens with a great contrast. Behold, my servant. 41 ends. Behold, the delusional gods. Chapter 42 opens. Behold, my servant. The Lord declares his plan to deliver his people through his servant. 
in this entire chapter is about God's servant. By way of outline, you'll notice in verse 1 through 4 that the servant is presented. God wants us to see his servant. Look there at the very first words. Behold, God is introducing and presenting his servant to us. Secondly, in verse 5 through 9, the servant is commissioned. Having been presented, now the servant is commissioned. And 5 through 9 is the Lord talking to his servant. You see there in verse 5, thus says the Lord God. And then notice, I am, I will, all throughout that section. And then verse 10 through 12 and on down through 17 that we'll deal with next week and the rest of the chapter, the servant that has been presented and commissioned, that servant is cause or praise. And so in verse 10, Isaiah exhorts everyone in the entire world to sing for joy because of God's servant. That's what I've been doing this week. The good news of this servant in chapter 42 has caused me to sing for joy this week. And my prayer is that you'll do the same. So let's read chapter 42, verse 1 through 12, our sermon text for today. Friends, this is God's word. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Verse 10, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. 
the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. That will end God's the reading of God's Word for this morning. Behold, that's how it begins. Look, God wants to show us his servant. Because as we rightly see the servant, we will sing for joy. Among all of the things in this text, I want us to focus on four distinctives about this servant. Four distinctives about this servant. Distinctive number one, I want us to notice his status. We see that at the beginning of verse one. When the Lord presents his servant to us, he tells us what kind of status he has, what kind of relationship God has with his servant. Read it again in verse, at the beginning of verse one. Behold, my servant, upon whom, pardon me, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. See, the Lord, the Lord describes his servant in three very personal ways that indicate God's relationship with his servant. He says, this is my servant, this is my chosen, and this is my delight. What does it mean that he is his servant? Behold, my servant. See, when God has a solution to man's problem, God's plan to deliver us from our enemies, God's help in the midst of our trouble, God's plan is always a person. What do you think would really help the world? What do you think would really fix our corporate problem? Strategies and systems? Innovation and technology? Philosophies and doctrines? God's solution always has been and always will be a person the person of Jesus Christ. The question is, what's your relationship to Jesus? So when God calls him my servant, that sort of sounds lowly, doesn't it? And it is. It certainly denotes a lot of of humility and service in his character, but it's actually a very special position. It's, It's a position of special service to the Lord when God chooses a representative for himself, a leader for his people, maybe a a special envoy or ambassador. God has called a number of people now in the Bible, my servant. He called Abraham my servant and Moses my servant and David my servant And then we see in the New Testament that Jesus is called 
my servant. Well, for now, Isaiah doesn't reveal the identity of this servant. He just says that God, the Lord, says this is my servant, and we know that this person is significant. And we know it because four different times in Isaiah, there are four passages that have become known as the servant songs. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then the last part of 52 into that famous passage in chapter 53. These uh, servant songs clearly reveal that this servant is no ordinary man, but he is the divine son, the divine king, the divine servant of the Lord. And now this is the third way that Isaiah has described God's Messiah. Do you remember in chapter 7 through 9, Isaiah said, the Lord is sending a son A child is going to be born, and we celebrate that first advent, the incarnation of the child, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Isaiah first started telling us that the Messiah was going to be a son given to us. And then from about chapter 9 all the way through chapter 39, he focused on God giving a king for his people. So there was the divine son, then there was the righteous king. Now, chapter 40 through 55, Isaiah focuses on that son, that king, being a servant, and not not just a servant, but a suffering servant. And we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ because Passages like Matthew chapter 12 that we read a little bit earlier clearly are identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of these passages. So when God wants us to see his servant, he wants us to see Jesus Christ. And he says to deliver you from bondage to sin, to deliver you from the prison of death, and hell. I didn't come up with new technologies or new strategies. I sent a person, my son, my king, my servant. His status is also, the Lord says he is my chosen one. See that at the beginning of verse one? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. Well, you can hear the special emphasis on this servant being chosen and called for special service. So God picked him, selected him, chose him, and God commissions him in verse 5 through 9. We see five different emphases there, or emphases, in verse 5 through 9. Take a look at that. In verse 5, we see that he is chosen by the sovereign creator God. So this is the God who could have chosen anyone, anything to accomplish his purposes, and he chose to do it this way. The sovereign God of creation, he says in verse 5, thus says God, the Lord, and we have to lower our voice when we read it like that. 
There's emphasis on the sovereignty of God there. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. You see, this is the same sovereign God who, in verse 9, proves that he's God by telling us what's going to happen before it happens, giving us good news in the midst of it, and then fulfilling his promises afterwards. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So this servant, number two, is chosen with righteousness, characterizing the beginning, the middle, and the end of his commission. Look in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. In other words, righteousness is the reason that I've called you. Righteousness is a requirement for this calling, And righteousness is the end result of this calling. God chose Jesus for this. Look at number three. In verse six, he's chosen with a promise of God's personal help. Do you remember in chapter 41 last week, we saw the very personal, tender help of God as he he conquers his enemies with his right hand holds our right hand with his left as his presence with us. Now notice what he says to his servant. Verse 6, I will take you by the hand and keep you. This servant is chosen and given a promise of God's personal help. In verse 6, it continues, number 4, he is chosen to be the promised Messiah, not just for God's people, Israel, but for the nations. Look in the middle of verse 6, I will give you as a covenant, a promise for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoners, those who sit in darkness. God says, I have chosen you to be the one to fulfill my promise to rescue my people, and not just Israel, but all of those from all of the earth, a light for the nations who are sitting in darkness right now. That's who this servant is. And then finally, look in in verse 8. He's chosen for the Lord's glory and will share in the Lord's glory. Verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He tells this servant that I have chosen you as the one who will accomplish my purposes so that I can be glorified. And then he says, I don't give my glory to anyone. But God gave his glory to this one because Jesus and God are one. So when he says, I share my glory with no one except my servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, listen, just after hearing that job description, you can understand why the pool of candidates is pretty slim, right? I certainly don't qualify for that. Do you? Neither did Abraham, neither did Moses, neither did David, neither did good King Hezekiah. They all showed themselves to be disqualified, to be God's ultimate servant who will deliver his people, but not Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this commission. This is my servant, God says. He's my chosen. And then look, in whom my soul delights. He is God's delight. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about what that means. Just think about those in whom your soul delights. Now, look, that takes it to a deeper level. We're not talking about Bonnie Blue Barbecue here. Your mouth delights in food But who does your soul delight in? Maybe your sweetheart. Probably your kids. For sure, your grandkids. Likely your pastor. (laughs) Who does your soul delight in? That's how God feels about the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, the Lord Jesus Christ became the object of God's wrath because of his great love for me and you. That's my servant. That's my chosen one. He's my delight, the Lord says. We can see his status there, can't we? Number two, distinctive number two that I want to point out this morning and for us to focus on, not just his status, but his power. Continue to read in verse one. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. I, God says, have put my spirit upon my servant. To have the spirit of God is to have the power of God. It's to have God himself. The power of God's servant here is a contrast to the delusion and powerlessness, nothingness of the gods of the earth. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Tell us what's to come hereafter. Tell us so that we know your gods. Do good, do harm, so that we can be dismayed and terrified. Do something Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Behold, the gods of the nations are all a delusion, but behold, my servant. I will put my spirit on him. The spirit 
of the God who in chapter 40 measures the waters in the hollow of his hands and marks off the heavens with a span. The spirit of the God who brings out the host of the stars and numbers them and calls them by name and makes sure that everyone is in their place. The spirit of the God in chapter 41 who is sovereign over the events of the world, including all the nations, who says about himself, I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he, the self-existent God. That spirit, that power rests on this servant. So when the Lord Jesus Christ went out into the wilderness and was baptized by John and came up out of the water and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, that was a visible demonstration that Jesus is the chapter 42 servant of God who has all the power and authority of the sovereign God of the universe. And ultimately, Jesus exercised that power and authority by following the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, just like we are, in every way that you are, Attitude, word, thought, deed. Yet, under the power of that spirit, he did not sin. And under the power of that spirit, he lived the life that Adam was supposed to live and that all of the sons and daughters of Adam were supposed to live and did not. And then under that power, He laid down his life to be a sacrifice willingly, voluntarily, joyfully for sinners like me and you. And then, under the same power, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and lives forevermore to secure us in a new covenant with God. That's his power. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus, the servant of God, used the power of God to accomplish the mission. That's the third thing that I want us to notice about this servant. Not only his status and his power But notice in verse 1, his mission. His mission. Read again, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Look there in verse 4. 
until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Do you see his mission given three times in verse 1 through 4? Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 4, he will establish justice in the earth. That's his mission. The mission of the servant is to, quote, bring forth justice. And not just for Israel. But you, did you notice? It's for the nations. Even the far-flung islands of the sea. They're waiting for his law to be brought to them. The word justice. It's a good translation of the Hebrew word here. But it's another one of those words like shalom. That justice just is sort of an oversimplification. We know a lot about shalom. It's the way things are supposed to be. And mishpah, the Hebrew word that's translated here, justice, is very much the same kind of a concept. This word justice refers to the social order that God intended. This is what life would be like if we had all lived according to God's law. Imagine that. This is what society would be like if we all loved one another. This is what decisions would be like if we all decided according to truth. For the servant to bring forth justice on the earth, God has commissioned his servant to the mission of restoring God's kingdom on earth. The righteous rule of God over his dominion. So when Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He was teaching us to pray for the very thing he had come to bring forth. This is his mission. When Jesus showed up, he preached the good news and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He was here to bring forth and restore justice on the earth. Well, nationally, justice was brought to Judah in 538 B.C. when God sent Cyrus to Persia to conquer Babylon and release several waves of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. You'll remember Ezra and Nehemiah. But spiritually and universally, justice was brought to the world through the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's servant, through his incarnation, through his life, through his death, resurrection, and ascension. The kingdom of darkness 
has been overthrown, past tense. It is finished. The kingdom of God has been restored in the hearts of all of those who will come to Jesus by grace through faith. And the kingdom of God will be fully and finally restored at the second advent of Jesus at his return when he establishes his kingdom on earth. The servant accomplished his mission. Which leads us to the fourth thing that I want you to see about this servant. Not just his stature or his power or his mission, but look at his method. Look at how he accomplishes his mission. What do you expect of God's righteous warrior? What do you expect of my servant who is going to, quote, bring forth justice on the earth? Not what we see here. Behold, my servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 2. How does he do it? He will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice. He will not make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed. He will not break. And a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. You see his method? I notice three things about the method of this servant in accomplishing his mission. He accomplishes his mission with humility. You see that in verse 2? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Unlike the kings of the earth, unlike the nobles, unlike the powerful men who have, who cry out in self-promotion, maybe who dominate people with their words, God's servant is humble. He doesn't promote himself. And to go along with his humility is his gentleness. Verse 3, notice how gentle he is. A bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick. A wick, it's all the way down to just barely smoldering, he will not quench. These images are to picture the weakness and frailty of those who come to Christ for rescue. The reed, it's bruised. It's almost broken. The kind of reed that is no good to anyone, right? Except my servant, God says. 
that bruised reed, he won't break. The wick is just barely smoldering. It's a faintly burning. It's almost extinguished. And what does God's servant do with it? God's servant doesn't quench that faintly burning wick. In gentleness, he blows it to flame. Oh, listen, bruised, almost extinguished friend. Jesus will breathe life into you. Jesus, our gentle, humble Savior, has come for those who see themselves as bruised and just about out. When we have nowhere else, when we have come to the end of ourselves, when we are truly poor in spirit and recognize the depravity of our flesh, then God has sent a gentle servant to save us. Richard Sibbs says in his books, the bruised reed is a man that for the most part is in some misery as those were that came to Christ for help. And by misery, he's brought to see sin as the cause of it. Have you seen your sin as the cause of your misery? Or is it always someone else's sin? Is it always the culture around us? Is it always Hollywood or Washington or some foreign country somewhere? Our misery is our sin. And until we see that, there's more bruising that needs to take place. There's more burning that needs to take place. But when we finally come to see ourselves as God sees us, he does not send a savior to blow us out. He sends his servant to breathe life back into us. We see Jesus in his earthly ministry constantly, constantly, compassionately moving toward one kind of people. Sinners. He's so gentle with sinners. And he was so aggressive against false teachers, and arrogant religious Pharisees, hypocrites. Dane Ortland, the writer of Gentle and Lowly, another one of my favorite books, one that would go along with Isaiah 42 very well, said, lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts toward others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. We see the status of this servant. We see the power of this servant. We see the mission of this servant. And we see the method of this servant. Friends, when you see 
that God had sent his servant to rescue you, that'll cause you to sing. That's why Isaiah ends this in verse 10 by saying, sing. Whether you're in the valley or on the mountaintop, look, verse 10 through 12, whether you're in the far-flung islands of the sea or whether you're in the villages right outside of Judah, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, sing because God has sent his servant to keep his promise to rescue you. Sing, friends. I've been singing this week, but I have gone beyond singing. And I want to end this servant uh, this sermon, this sermon with an application for us. The good news of this servant is more than just a one-dimensional praise to God for Jesus. Well, that's good, right? Praise to God for Jesus. But this is more than that. Our union with Christ means that his status, his power, his mission, and his method become ours. Look back at those four things just briefly and understand that when we're united with Christ by grace, through faith, then his status as the chosen servant of God who is God's delight is ours. That's Ephesians chapter 1 in a nutshell, isn't it? We are chosen, made holy, adopted as sons, redeemed, forgiven, given an inheritance and sealed for all of eternity. Not because God loves us in so much as it's because we're connected with the delight of God's heart, his son, his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that our relationship with God is secure, not based on our performance, but based on our union with Jesus and his relationship with God. Man, that will turn up the volume on your singing. Because of our union with Christ, his power becomes our power. Just as Jesus was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, I'm going to ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you. He will be in you. To have the Spirit of God is to have the power of God. Now we know that about Jesus, but Christian, you have the same power that Jesus had because the same Holy Spirit of God indwells you too. Man, that's a way bigger deal than we make of it. And just like the Spirit empowered the servant 
to accomplish the mission, which was to bring forth justice, the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to live as citizens of God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit empowers us to say no to sin and yes to God, to obey God's law, to experience righteousness and peace as citizens of the kingdom, even while we live here. Because of our union with Christ, the servant, his status is ours, his power is ours, and his mission is ours. You're looking for God's will for your life? You're trying to figure out what to do next? Sometimes you feel purposeless, like your life really has no meaning? His mission becomes your mission. So I don't care whether you're single or married. I don't care whether you work a secular job or a ministry job. Every Christian has one mission, and that is to be the ambassador for the king in your home, in your workplace, and in your neighborhood. And by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom restored through Christ, we join the servant and the Lord in bringing forth justice to hearts and homes all around us. And on that mission, you want to know how to accomplish that mission? His method becomes our method. His method, humble, gentle, tenacious. The disciples of Christ don't accomplish his mission with our aggression. We follow the servant into humble gentleness. Why? Just think about how gentle he has been with you. How can we be so irritated with others? So done with them. The grace that we received should flow out of us to be grace to others, friends. Ah, friends, this, this is something to sing about. And it's something to live in light of. So don't just praise God for Jesus. Start this afternoon recognizing that your status is secure, not because of your performance, but because of his relationship. Your power is real not based on your determination and discipline. Tried it, been there, done that, failure. But when we yield to the Holy Spirit and obey him, we have the same power that Jesus had. His mission becomes ours 
and his method becomes ours. So this week, let's make it our priority. Priority number one, parents. Gentle, humble, righteous gospel ministry to your kids. Go to work on mission this week, not to make much of yourself, but to make much of Jesus through your humility and gentleness. Oh, man, this is so good. Something to sing and celebrate about, isn't it? That's why we come to the table. If you're in Christ, let's do that now. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you very much for Isaiah 42 and the servant that you sent. We know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we praise you for him. We're about to sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. We thank you for the power of transformation that you have worked in our hearts through the humble and gentle servant Jesus. Thank you in his name.